Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. The advice industry is constantly evolving and advisors are continually pushing the norms in order to get to know their clients better and improve the suitability process. Regulators and advisors agree that matching an investment to an investor is underpinned by risk tolerance and financial ability, but can advisors go further to understand the emotional ability of a client to take that risk? Is there a behavioral capacity that can determine how a client may interact with their investment portfolio? I'm Imogen Chu, Senior Reporter at FD Advisor, and joining me today to discuss the possibilities is Greg Davies, Head of Behavioural Science at Oxford Risk, Alistair Wilson, Head of Platform Strategy at Embark Group, and Niall Gunn, Managing Director at Prosperous. Welcome to you all and thanks very much for joining us. Morning. Hi Imogen. Good morning, nice to be here. Greg, um, can you give us a brief overview of exactly what behavioural capacity is? Yeah, absolutely. So, when we're trying to figure out the right investment portfolio for someone, traditionally we think about two things. We think about the risk that are willing to take in the long term, and we think about the risk they are financially able to take given their financial circumstances now. And that boils down a lot to uh, financial liquidity. Do I have the liquidity to be able to ride out the ups and downs of, of the cycle? But giving someone the right answer for their long-term needs is seldom the complete answer. Because people don't only have a financial ability to ride out the ups and downs, they also have an emotional ability to ride out the ups and downs. We could, we could think about this as emotional liquidity. So in measuring behavioral capacity, what you're asking is not just what is the right answer in the long term, but how do we help you to stick with the journey so that you don't exit before you've actually um, managed to get the sort of investment returns you should? Sure. Okay. And... Um... What kind of role can that play in kind of the advisor's own suitability process? Well, I think, you know, in suitability, it's it's not a core part of suitability because suitability is about establishing what is the correct answer for this client's long-term needs. Sure. Um, so it's less about what is the suitable portfolio. It's less about how do I help to manage, help you to manage your emotional state along the journey. So it's more about client support, client assistance, client communication, engagement, than it is necessarily about suitability. Although there is a caveat to that. So if you know that someone is likely to be very anxious through any ups and downs of the market cycle, you may on some in some occasions wish to tweak the risk level of the portfolio just to dial it down slightly, because otherwise you're giving some someone a portfolio that you know is going to turn them into a nervous wreck at some point. Um, Alistair, can you see this kind of being adopted more widely by advice firms? Well, I think advisors are already looking at this whole aspect because they've looked at uh, assessing risk. They've looked at investment biases and started to take on board a lot of that uh, information and, and the behaviours that they're seeing. Because if you were to speak to an advisor, and now maybe able to back me up on this, um, when they speak to different occupations within their client set, whether it's engineers, teachers, or doctors, they may already know that they will experience a certain type of behavior or envision a certain type of, of questioning from those types of clients. So, so in some ways, behavioral capacity, this behavioral trait is already there in the marketplace. And I think what has been happening over the years is advisors have been working their way through assessing risk, 
passing through a number of iterations of that, and that's come out the, the other end, I suppose, with a, a firm questionnaire. But of course, what then happens now is when you go through a questionnaire, if you're a husband and wife, they go through a questionnaire, they could both end up with the same risk score. But from an individual point of view, they're fundamentally different people mm. and different behaviours, and therefore their own personal tolerances do very much come into play. So I think advisors are already on that journey, but I think it's one that will expand over the, the course of the years. Sure. Niall, is that something you've picked up in your own experience as, as an advisor? Yes, very much so. I think um, the way I would sort of couch it in uh, in words of, of simple understanding, what Greg's on about really is relationship management. Um, it's beyond the assessing of risk. It's beyond um, picking the right portfolio. It's actually managing a relationship. And, and I, 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 I put that in, in, in this way. When you've had that first kiss with the first girlfriend, you instantly you, you you will instantly know if you're going to have a second kiss and a third kiss and et cetera, et cetera. And in the same way with the client engagement, we have to have that feel how it's going to mature and develop over a five-year investment period, a 15-year investment period, or whatever it is to retirement and beyond. And I think that's really important. And, that, and I think that supersedes the assessment of the risk, the choice of investment portfolio, the valuation statements every year, the discussions. And what Greg was alluding to, I think, in, in its simplest terms, is how do we continue to manage that relationship going forward all the way through that life cycle of that client? And, and again, putting it in simple terms, it's education, it's knowledge. I think uh, I'll be very, because I like to be a little bit uh, off the wall, there are some uh, sectors uh, of the professional market which advisors hate to deal with. Um, and I'll say that out loud now, it's teachers. It's one of the things that causes problems because teachers know everything. <laughs> and you have, you have to then manage the relationship with the engineer, the teacher, the doctor, the, the lawyer, the accountant, whoever it may be, in, in completely different ways. And you, have to, you, almost, you almost prostitute yourself to being able to play dumb with some clients and being much more grandfatherly, grandmotherly with others and much sure. more hand-holding others. And I think that's how it has to be because it's a people business at the end of the day. I mean, we hear from advisors all the time that um, kind of their capacity levels are kind of maxed out, right? You've got more people looking for advice than you have advisors to give it. And people and advisors often talk about the kind of time constraints of their business. Um, as we move kind of more into this financial planning side, which is the behavioral coaching and stuff, do you think advisors are going to struggle to maintain that level with all of their clients and kind of make sure that they can keep their business viable? Undoubtedly so. Um, and again, it goes back to the relationship. When you're married, uh, you don't see your wife 24-7. You'll see her in the morning when you get up, you leave, you go to the office, you go back at tea time. You're only going to see your close relationships at certain points of the day. Same with clients. You cannot cope being married to 25 people, to 125 people, to 1,000 people. So the time constraints is one thing. The relationship constraints are another. Um, I had a call this morning before we came on uh, from a client who's down in London. Uh, we're up in sunny Yorkshire, where it's still sunny, by the way. Um, it never rains in Yorkshire. The, the client's 
desire to 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 do what he wants to do. The request he had for me was very 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 basic. He didn't know how to do it. He couldn't get onto the platform. He couldn't do it himself. Equally, I'll have a call this afternoon with another client, and it'll be to tell me, "Oh, I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other." Now, I'll spend more time with the guy this morning than I will do with the guy this afternoon, and it's a question of balance. And I, I think the, the I go back to what Greg says because I think you've actually nailed it. It is, it is that relationship. How do you manage the relationship? You can only manage what you've got in front of you over that time scale. We don't work twenty four seven. My wife will disagree with that, but <laughs> we we do have to manage that. And you have a capacity, um, and we are in demand, which is great. You know, business is good for that, but you have to really drive the the relationship forward with that in the back of your mind. It's very difficult. What about you, Alistair? What are you hearing from your kind of advisor clients um, who use the Embark platform or those that you that you talk to? Are they are they struggling to implement this into their business or is it just a natural part of the process? I think it's a, it's a, it's a gradual build of the existing understanding that they already have with their clients. So as Niall says, it is very much a one-to-one relationship and, and client personalities will come through over the years. And I think advisors have have demonstrated their skill of the delivery of advice in such a way that clients can understand. And they're sought to take on board the investment learns, whether it's investment biases, risk profiling, whatever it may be, um, as well as enhancing their own technical knowledge through CPDs and exams. This is just another part of that overall process of getting to know their clients better and recognizing who their clients are, who they're speaking to. And I think that does come through time, but I don't think it's a, an immediate rush whereby come next Monday, all advisors need to be pulling through this process. What they need to do is, is continue to understand who are they speaking to and how does that client best interact with them? So are they better sending them uh, long newsletters every month on a regular basis? I can imagine there'll be some clients that will react badly to that because they'd rather have short, sharp, relevant pieces of information to them. And I think that's where the time constraints that that Niall alludes to really does come in because advisors have already segmented their clients in lots of ways to align with FCA requirements. And I would suggest many haven't aligned them through behaviours and personalities of their clients. Uh, And therefore, this is more of a challenge to make sure that what is being sent out to their clients on a regular basis or how they're interacting with them is appropriate to that individual. So it is a gradual process from the image and it's not something that's going to be done in one uh, overnight. Sure. And um, I imagine there'll be kind of in an advice firm, let's, if we take the kind of coronavirus induced market crashes in March, um, you're going to have a range of clients that are going to react to that in very different ways. And I'm assuming that doing this kind of behavioral capacity work means that you know who first to call and who's all right that you call in a few hours time once you've dealt with those people. Um, Greg, do, is that something you agree with? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think two things are important here. One is the relationship is absolutely the answer here. And and the reason that's answer, the answer is over time, getting the relationship wrong can have a bigger effect on a client's overall portfolio returns than getting the asset allocation wrong. Um, Because if people, because of their immediate behavioral need to 
feel emotionally comfortable right now, if they sell at the bottom of the market or they buy high, they sell low, those add up to very much bigger costs than getting a slightly wrong asset allocation. So this stuff really matters, not just because we want to have a good relationship, but because it matters to the final portfolio outcome. Uh, the other aspect of it is that the timing piece and the fact that people are short of time um, really raises the importance of getting this right at the outset and using solid, robust technology and tools to do so. Because a good advisor who spends lots of time with their client over the years, who's empathetic, who knows their industry well, will be doing this anyway for the clients that they've had for a long time. But in times of COVID, when every one of your client base simultaneously is having their circumstances change dramatically, is being stressed emotionally, they have financial stresses, health stresses, social stresses. Here, it is very difficult for humans to, in an error-free way, to assess what is the right thing for, to, for me to do for every single one of these clients right now. So they're being able to draw on objective measures of financial personality is really, really powerful. And where we're heading to here are systems that can help to free up time of advisors by put it pointing in the right direction. So markets drop and you could go onto your screen as an advisor, look at your entire client list and they would be partitioned into these five, talk to them right now with this message. These 10, leave them until the end of the week. And that's the sort of thing that takes these, these ideas of behavioral capacity of behavioral finance and starts to make it a valuable tool to enhance and empower the advisor to be more efficient, to say the right things to the right people at the right time. And also, let's be honest, to eliminate the, um, the dangers of inconsistency and subjectivity that we as human advisors are always subject to, particularly in times when we're stressed as well. Sure. Um, kind of open to all of you, really, is what would you... Um say an advisor listens to this and thinks, okay, I'm not doing enough of this side of things. What would you kind of give them as tips to when when they first meet a client and trying to kind of include this in the fact find and understanding where a client's behavioral capacity lies? How do, how do you go about finding that out? I don't, I don't think you can discover that uh, at one meeting. Uh, again, I go back to the boyfriend girl thing, the first kiss. It's a development. It starts and it grows. Um, and I'm, it, that may be sounding oversimplified, but it is, it, it's, it's exactly what Greg was saying. Um, you've got to treat people differently. Um, you've got to react for some people in a different way. You can ignore some people uh, because you know that they'll be fine no, no matter what. Uh, and it is the emotional intelligence that you can only develop within a, a within a long term relationship. So you, the question is difficult to answer, um, but I, anecdotally, we have clients who we will see once a year, and you know what? They're really happy with that. They don't have a problem. The markets can go up and down all over the place. They don't care. We have other clients that we have to be on the ball with weekly. Uh, we have to make sure that they get an email straight away. Something happens that we 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 have that line of communication. But that's not how we started out with those people. We gave them our standard pack. Uh, this is our service proposition. This is how we operate, et cetera, et cetera. But only through time, through learning and understanding their needs, did we develop that, oh, hang on, he's going to be in this category. He's going to be over here. So going back to the segmentation bit, yeah, we all segmented post-order. Um, we have our 
gold, silver, bronze clients, whatever they might be. But the reality is you, you, you can't pigeonhole people into those day one. People will evolve, mature, and, and grow into them. So I, I, would, I would agree with that um, largely in the sense that figuring out the right answer, building that relationship needs to happen over time. However, I would say that with technology, there's a surprising amount we can shortcut in that first meeting. We can get a series of very objective measures that will help us to uh, understand who this client is on, on multiple dimensions of their financial personality. Now, how you use that needs to be developed over time in that relationship. Um, but, uh, you know, for example... But, but that's Sorry, Greg, that's a skill set that the advisor has to learn. And not, there aren't many advisors, the guys who work for me, would struggle in that scenario. There's a yeah. skill set in, in understanding that. I totally agree. There's this great technology out there, and we should use more and more and more of it. But yeah. how you deliver it down the line is a skill set that they have to learn. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and that's another reason for, for, for using the objective measure. So, you know, we, for example, at Oxford Risk, have the ability to measure up to 15 different dimensions of financial personality. Um, takes about 30 seconds for each one. Now, there's a, there's a medical analogy here. So... If, if you have a long-term illness, you, you, you want to spend time getting that right, thinking through the pros and cons of what do I do with my lifestyle versus going undergoing an operation versus medication. And that's an ongoing dialogue and, and discussion. And the doctor, like the advisor here, needs that skill set to be able to manage that relationship, etc. But right at the outset, you want your doctor to be using all the diagnostic tools at their disposal, the, the x-rays, the MRI scans, the blood tests, yep. etc because that provides you with the strongest diagnostic objective foundation on, on which you to build those conversations. And that's where I think the, the combination is particularly powerful. So right up front, putting your client through a five to 10 minute financial personality assessment enables you very quickly to know which conversations are likely to be more valuable in the next meeting um, and the meeting after that. So I think that the, the combination of the two can these days start to get us there much more quickly and more reliably than perhaps we've had the opportunity to in the past. Yeah, I agree with that. Interesting. Alistair, anything to add here? Yeah, I think the point being here is how you assess a client at the beginning of any journey and how they then change their own views, their own personality traits as they go through different life cycles or indeed as different events play out, whether it's in the world stage or more locally for them. The challenge is always going to be a situation of saying, well, if they were fully employed on the Monday and then redundant by the, fr by the Friday, their whole outlook to life has fundamentally shifted and their behavioural traits will have done the same. And therefore, it's, it's important that these get retested on an ongoing basis. But this is, as Niall started off, this is relationships. This is making sure that you have continual engagements with your clients as they travel through different life cycles to make sure that how you're treating them is the way they want to be treated at the end of the day and making sure that they're not making rash decisions if that's what they're prone to and helping them through that, whether or not that's through specific nudges. But I think you know there's a whole piece here that technology has to play. You've got assessment of personality traits, but it's then how do you nudge clients effectively into taking action or indeed not taking action because you're providing the reassurance and the technology I would probably say isn't quite there yet and in the hands of advisors to, to help them do that effectively. That's, that's a very valuable point if I can just pick up on it from a, an advisory perspective. 
um, because the the science will tell you that you're, and let's take attitude to investment risk as a starter. The science will tell you that that risk, that element of risk is, is nurtured into you in your late teens, early 20s. And you'll always be a high risk taker or a low risk taker or a balanced risk taker. You only change that element of, of risk when you A, understand it, learn more about it the, as, you, as the older you get. So naturally, as we understand risk more and we, we get older, we get less able, both physically, mentally, and financially, we take less risk. And the science will back that up. That's, that's pretty simple stuff. And I think Alistair's absolutely nailed it, that you, 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 you have to be able to interpret the, the, the mood changes, the, the, the physical changes, obviously, with the client who gets made redundant or changes job, et cetera, from time to time. And the technology is there. Um, Greg will tell us, no doubt, there's bags of it all over the place. But I think from an advisory community, um, we, we lack the skill set to use it. Uh, we lack the skill set to know where to go uh, to get help with it. But uh, it's clearly would speed up our understanding of what that client wants to do and what their objectives are and how they would potentially change. And I think that's, that's a really in- interesting avenue to go down and explore with advisory firms. I bet there's very few using them. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we're, we really still are at the, at the beginning of what is possible here in terms of uh, we've got pretty good measures. And it's important to realize that if you're measuring personality traits, those are pretty stable. You need to, you need to refresh them every few years. But a personality trait is not going to predict what's going to, someone's going to do in every circumstance. There are indicators of someone's tendency or proclivity towards certain types of, of actions. But merely being able to measure someone's personality really leaves you with a so what. And the stuff that uh, we are working very hard on right now, and, and, and so, together with many of our clients and some other firms are as well, is it is not just about going, oh, you're high risk tolerance or your low composure or that. It's about saying, if last week markets were volatile and I know that your portfolio has dropped and I know that you are low composure and I know that over the weekend you logged in to look at the value of your portfolio, those things come together such that on Monday morning, I know that you are someone I need to speak to about a specific in a specific sort of way. So it's about hyper-personalization and targeting of the message that is delivered by the advisor in the context of that relationship, but is is guided by these tools being able to surface to the advisor recommendations and suggestions that are are built on these objective measures of what's happening in in clients' lives in real time. Is there an element here, guys, that um, the coronavirus crisis and the working from home, the virtual meetings, the kind of more technology focused interactions with clients has kind of spurred this on or accelerated what this could potentially be if advisors and their clients are more comfortable with the odd 10 minute FaceTime to check in rather than our yearly review in January. Um, do you think that that's going to play a part? I think fundamentally, uh, we have changed the way we operate as a profession across the piece. Um, and I'll put that in pound, shillings and pence, because I think people understand money uh, a lot more than uh, fancy words. So in my budget, I have costed uh, expenses for my advisors traveling to see clients at their homes. Uh, my budget of that is let's just say it's £20,000 for the year. We've spent less than £3,000 of that so far this year. 
there's less expense in, in dealing with the, uh, the traveling to see the client. But all of those clients have been seen. Not one client has rejected a Zoom meeting. Not one client has resisted uh, a telephone call. You know, when we push it out, yeah, no problem. Great to talk to you. Look after yourself. Stay safe. Hope the family is great. So it's a fundamental sea change, uh, the way we operate. And that goes back to the question you asked, Alistair, uh, earlier about capacity for advisors to, to cope. I don't have to spend four hours in the car up to uh, Glenrothes to see one of my bigger clients and four hours in the car coming back. I can see them and do the, do the discussion in 45 minutes to an hour. So I've got nine hours spare that I didn't have up to, the, up to 2020. It's great. So I can see four or five more clients who can do more work in the day. So it is a fundamental sea change. Now, will we go back to the jumping in the car? I mean, I like to drive around the country. I love it. I love my driving. But will we be doing it more? I can't see that. My, my, my car now does three weeks to the gallon. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair. I think you could never have imagined carrying out any form of experiment if you put aside the, the stresses and strains and uh, family disappointments that COVID has brought in for many. You could never, never have thought of running an experiment such as this. And I think what it has done is accelerate the acceptance and importantly across the generations of using technology. You could never have imagined uh, grandparents jumping onto their iPads or using a, a PC or however it is they're acting with the internet. But they are in order for them to see their grandkids and interact with their children, etc. And I think that really has opened a, a door of acceptance of being able to engage such as we are today and as we will in the future. I think Niall is absolutely right. The way that advisors will be engaging with their clients has fundamentally shifted because their clients are willing to be engaged in this way. And that was going Very to much. be, a, I would have thought, a, a longer a longer road than, than we have experienced. Now, clearly that has different economic uh, cycles for us. So in, in some ways it, it saves Nile lots of money, uh, whether that's on, on petrol and on time, but it has a, an economic impact for us all as in that uh, the petrol stations are not going to use them. So just practical aspects like that. But I think when you start going back to individual personalities, there will always be things along the way that will challenge how people behave. And even if you look at today's environment, so if you if you bring it bang up today and look at what is going to happen on property, so clients have had their access to property suspended for the last six months. There is a, a possibility that the FCA might change the rules whereby that is no longer a possible suspension, but an enforced period whereby you'll have to give notice if you want to access your money. How will that change people's behaviour? Because that's something else. It's, there are many different influences that are going to arrive on advisor doorsteps and their clients that when they started their journey, whether it's financial journey or any other, they were behaving in one way. But because of a fundamental shift and telling someone, well, it's possible you might uh, not have access to your fund to, you would definitely not have access to your fund for a period of six months. What does that do? Especially if you're just also at the same time changing a lifestyle and moving into retirement. Absolutely. I think as, as, as designers of behavioral finance software and decision support tools, uh, you know, a few, a few things come from COVID. 
One is the acceleration of digitization and increased acceptance of it. Um, another one, like any crisis, is um, a focus on the importance of emotion and on the importance of decision-making in times of stress. And we saw a similar surge during, during the sort of 08, 09 financial crisis and we've, we've seen that again is that the prevalence of people thinking hang on this all this behavioral stuff actually does matter and we need to take it seriously that's important and particularly in COVID I think the the pressures of having to reach all of your clients simultaneously and do so under pressure through a digital medium has raised the importance of technology as a solution to part of the advice process or at least to uh, so to being able to provide humans with tools that free up their time to more usefully do the stuff that humans are good at. I, I think that's very valid, Greg. I think it comes down to the basic communication. You know, the, the letter in the post and the, the annual statement, that, that it was nice touchy-feely. But in the COVID emotional distress that it's caused, the, uh, we, we've done or I've done much more uh, email briefings on the markets to my clients than I've ever done in the last six months. We've had much more of the digital uh, meetings than we've ever, ever had in history. And I think it's that communication. And it goes back again. The more you communicate with somebody, the better you know them and the better they know you. And, the, and, the, and you create the trust and the understanding in the relationship. And that's absolutely key. Um, I, I, I cannot see us reversing back to the old ways of doing uh, business. I really can't. Yes, there are disadvantages with the petrol stations. Uh, yes, there are impacts on the economy and certain things. But you know what? I think Greg's nailed it when he said people are readily engaging in digitalization. They will. They trust it more. They understand it works. It's safer. There's less risk with it. And I think that can only be good news for the planet. Um, and it can only be good news for what we do for our clients. Sure. Um, Greg, Alistair, Niall, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Imogen. Welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. Joining me today is Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer, senior reporters at FT Advisor. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Now, Rachel, the pandemic has been financially brutal to various sectors and firms across the globe, but we were recently given another snapshot into financials of advice firms. What did it show? Yeah, some research from the Personal Finance Society and Next Wealth uh, published towards the end of last week uh, gave us a little bit more information as to how advice firms have been getting on, especially in the sort of later half of, of lockdown and, and more recent months. Um, a few worrying headline figures, three quarters of advisors um, said that they had seen their gross revenues fall during COVID-19 um, and a fifth of these forecast a decline of at least 20%. So that's a fifth. That is, that is quite substantial. Uh, the research covered 365 PFS members, so quite a significant number of firms to, to sort of be giving feedback on this. Um, Heather Hopkins, who's the MD at NextWealth, said that whilst financial planners and advisors adapted really quickly to working from home, having that sort of missing the, the face-to-face uh, contact with clients was, was clearly taking a bit of a toll. Um, but nearly half of the respondents did say that uh, they were getting more client inquiries in, which does fit the prediction that we've seen in the wider industry 
that um, consumers should be seeking financial advice, especially now with so much market volatility and people are not sure what to do with their investments and their pensions. So as Ms. Hopkins said, that all indicators do point to a sort of rapid recovery once the new client inquiries begin to pay off and people can get back to normal with face-to-face meetings. Okay, cool. Um, and I mean, has this changed much since kind of the initial snapshots we were seeing at the start of the pandemic? Like, how does this compare? Yeah, so the sort of biggest snapshot into financial resilience at firms we've seen so far is the FCA's own survey, which was sent out in June. Um, that came back with quite encouraging figures. Only 14 firms said that uh, the, the pandemic was threatening their survival. Now, obviously, a drop in revenues doesn't equal a threat in survival. That, you know, that, that's, those two aren't uh, strictly linked. Um, but we, I guess it, I, I was surprised to see quite so many numbers from this most recent survey from PFS and NextWealth showing such significant drop in revenues. So it'll be interesting to see what the latest FCA survey, which was sent out a couple of weeks ago, comes back with now that perhaps the impact of the pandemic um, has, has, is perhaps a bit more felt within firms sure i think as well um it's very difficult in june kind of what you're three months into what could be years and years of financial uncertainty for these firms so there's potentially as well that in june the kind of thinking that firms had about their financial stability may have been kind of with a certain view of lockdown and coronavirus in mind, which has changed because the situation has developed so much from June to, to October. So, yeah, it will be very interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head there that people just didn't really know what the future might look like in, in June. It was still very early days. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the next survey that comes out now that people are taking stock of, of, of quite what the impact has been will be really interesting. Mm. Does the research give us kind of any early insight into how the impact of COVID might shape the advice industry going forward? Yeah, so the research picked up on the smallest firms, which had been hit the hardest. 83% of firms with only two to five employees Um had reported a drop in revenue and this is alongside directly authorised firms who had suffered more than their appointed representative counterparts. This could accelerate a pattern which has been emerging in the industry in recent years of smaller advice firms joining networks, becoming appointed representatives because they are sheltered a little bit more from this type of thing and then obviously that helps with the costs that we already know or a problem in terms of regulatory bills and PI costs as well. Um, so, yeah, if it's the smaller directly authorised firms which are being hit the hardest, we could definitely see a shift in the makeup of the advice industry as a result of the pandemic, in particular, if we start seeing a serious second wave and lockdown and this goes into next year. Sure. I think at the beginning of um, lockdown as well, we, we kind of learned that it was... Uh, newer firms that were suffering more because they didn't have maybe as big of a client bank built up so they had that ongoing revenue that was like tipping into advisor firms yeah. wasn't necessarily already kind of set up and it was the new business which you got through face-to-face and you got through when kind of the world is going normally and um, potentially that might make that might link up as well you got you might see kind of newer directly authorized firms being the hardest hit yeah absolutely um, which again, you know, would would be a real shame considering how difficult the market can already be for be for firms of of that type. Sure, 
Um, ongoing issues that aren't related to coronavirus are, of course, also still making the headlines. Um, social care has once again reared its head. Amy, are we any closer to seeing a solution? No. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so there's been discussions at the Conservative Party conference um, earlier this week, you know, there's always going to be a debate around social care, especially, you know, given what's gone on at the moment with the whole coronavirus. It really has highlighted just how shocking our social care service and its funding is. Um, OK, so, yeah, no, currently we have not got any further. There's still, you know, lots of questions about whether it's going to happen this year. Um some people say some people have faith in the government and think, you know, that we could see something coming out of this. Um, whereas others um, have just said, you know, there's not enough time left. I mean, we're already in October. Um, what, another two months? It's not enough time, especially with fighting COVID. Um, at the same time, there's just not going to be any reform yet. Sure. And um, obviously, a wider solution is going to cost money. That's just kind of basic maths. Um, Do you think people are prepared to pay more in their taxes um, or any other way to try and kind of solve this this care crisis? I think it's um, it's quite hard to say at the moment because obviously there's this whole thing being mooted that we might have. Well, we probably are going to have to pay more in taxes just to pay off this COVID debt that is just, you know, racking up at the moment. Um, However, uh, speaking at the Conservative uh, Party conference earlier in the week, as I said, um, Vicky Cook, founding partner of Britain Thinks, um, said she had done some research and actually found that people were quite supportive of paying taxes to go towards social care, you know, paying throughout your working life to pay for something that you will need mainly in later life, you know, that's not always the case, but in most cases, Mm. what happens. Um, However, there was suggestions that something called a, like an earmarking tax, like its official name is hypothecated tax. Um, But they were were warning that this needs extremely careful considerations um, because basically the way it works is it would... um, dedicate a revenue from a specific tax um, for a particular purpose. So, you know, they would come up with a tax and all of this revenue would go straight into social care. However, while that sounds like it's a really great idea, and you know, the funding issue may be solved, um, it would need to like rise and fall in line with demand um, because, you know, one month, it could be way too much being given to social care. And then the next, it could be way way too little like depending on how much social care is needed from year to year from month to month um so yeah anything that's you know any tax reform really is going to have to be carefully considered before they go ahead I mean it's not a problem I would like to solve the social care issue I think is extremely complicated you know what works for one might not work for another you've got the rich you've got the poor you know you've got so much to consider um so yeah I think it's a case as well of raising awareness among the population because it's one of those issues to a certain extent that until you're in that position where you need care you just don't really give it much thought so you know when you're in your 20s it's not something that you really think is at the top of the priority list it's only when 
you begin to get older or you need it yourself or perhaps your parents your grandparents need it that it sort of begins to top your agenda and perhaps that's more awareness is needed in that area too mm. it's actually quite um worrying because they were saying um that actually a lot of people think it's funded by the nhs they have like a nasty shock you know yeah. a really nasty shock later because it's not cheap it's extortionate it's not something you can just pull out of a of your back pocket like you're going to have to save up to pay for social care it's in the same bracket as a pension really isn't it they there's always these kind of warnings issued of um younger people pulling out of their auto enrollment not benefiting from the tax-free advantages and the mm. accumulation of the money you're putting in when you're young because because you've we've only witnessed really the generation going through that had their pension provided for them fully by the employer and the state and we're going to start to see people getting to retirement with no plan and no financial backing and being too poor to survive and I think we're going to see the same thing happen with social care that the responsibility is being passed on to the individual without necessarily the the education and the resources to back it um so no we've clearly got a big problem brewing but at the moment as you said Amy the government is fighting fires rather than being able to build structures for the future isn't it do you reckon the conservatives can do this alone Amy absolutely not like it has to have cross-party consensus because you know we could have another government whenever and then they could completely go, do you know what? We don't agree with the Conservatives' plan for social care. We thought it was rubbish. We're going to scrap it and we're going to start again. Like, how helpful is that? It's the same with pensions, you know. It would be great to have a cross-party consensus so then they don't constantly change you or constantly keep up with all the new tax rules or, you know, whatever's going on. If, you know, if you can agree across parties, then a long-term plan can be sort out and people will know where they stand rather than, you know, a short-term funding solution, like a quick injection into the social care system, which, you know, will help in the short term, but in the long term helps nobody. Sure. A sombre thought to end on there. Thank you for listening to the FT Advisor podcast. Join us next week for the next episode. 